Welcome to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and the exploration of its culture. I'm Matt Blank, producer and co-host. If you'd like to support this independent production, visit our Buy Me a Coffee link in the description and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, I interview best-selling author Brian Germain, who sold more copies of his award-winning book, The Parachute and Its Pilot, than dollars have been spent updating the Skydiver's Information Manual. He's a career educator with a master's degree in sports psychology and a groundbreaking parachute engineer and test pilot. As an athlete, he's been an innovator of high-performance canopy flight and free-flying. Oh, and did I mention he base jumped back in the day when you had to make your own gear? He's survived long enough in air sports that it can't be an accident, and he has a lot of wisdom to share to help us stay on the right side of the dirt. So without further ado, let's get Brian on the track. Brian, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So uh, for you, those of you that are unfamiliar, Brian Germain uh, has had a long career in uh, skydiving and a uh, really historic career in base jumping and is also the uh, author of A Parachute and Its Pilot, um, a book that we've talked about on this podcast a bunch just in passing. And so uh, it's great to have the author himself on to talk about the parachute and the pilot. Right on. Uh, before we get going into the book itself, uh, maybe you can tell us a story. I know that you uh, started base jumping in the 80s. Yep. Uh, can you tell us yeah. what that was like? <laughs> it wasn't a very refined sport at that point. You know, this was jumping, skydiving gear, slightly modified. Uh, you know, we'd go to the bridge. We, you know, there's, uh, we did some cliffs and things like that. We did it. We did a building as well using our skydiving canopies. We'd take the slider off. We didn't, you know, I mean, a lot of these, we didn't even have a tail pocket. You just stow the lines in rubber bands, just back and forth. You split the rubber bands, you know, you cut it lengthwise so that it's skinnier. And honestly, our openings were great. I mean, I, I did one, you know, a, a cliff jump in Canada called Bon Echo that was under 300 feet using my nine cell exactly on heading opening it was it was perfect i was you know i, I mean it, it was as good an opening as you see with a base canopy now so you know we i'm really glad that that so many people have worked hard to advance the technologies um and it certainly has afforded you know a lot of people to to walk away from jumps that they might not have but we got away with it so I, I gotta ask you, man, do like all of us modern base jumpers just look like total fucking nerds to no, you with no. like, you know, all of our technology and the vents and like the no. like slats and all this? No, nerds live longer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you gotta get into the science of it and optimize, you know, if and, and find ways to to eradicate the, you know, the accidents where you go, all right, well, this was a gear thing. You know, the canopy didn't inflate it fast enough or it opened off heading or something like that. Um, you solve the problem so you can do this longer. You know, to me, that's the goal. Do it as many times as you possibly can, you know. Um, and it is, I'm, I'm proud of the base community for working so hard to learn these details and, and you know, solve these problems. And speaking of doing it for a long time, maybe you can confirm or deny this uh you know, thing that I've heard about base jumpers in the eighties. And I think this originally came from Martin Tilly, but mm -hmm. it was that, uh, if you went out with a group, you had to bring $300 in burial money with you just in case, whatever, <laughs> like ragtag system you invented didn't work. Your friends weren't like put out. <laughs> 
Oh, that's funny. We didn't do that. You know, we, we used to, I mean, certainly people would, you know, put some beer money in their reserve flap in case they went in, you know, because that's the first time you went in. But yeah, I, I like the idea, I guess. It's sort of a negative affirmation though, isn't it? Yeah, I like the beer money one better. That's that's some comedy. Yeah, exactly. You got to <laughs> have a sense of humor about heavy stuff, right? Otherwise it just wears you down. So that was the first base jump. I also want to, just for context, um, dive into the first parachute you designed. Mm -hmm. What was the first parachute yeah. that you designed? Well, I, I mean, the first actual skydiving canopy that I built was uh, the Jedi. And so I, I had designed the airlock on my own. I had built uh, numerous miniatures, you know, identical canopies with and without airlocks and sort of, you know, proving the concept. And I brought it to Tony Aragallo in Florida, wonderful man. Um, and he was open-minded enough to, to just basically hire me on the spot when, you know, he saw the airlock, he did a little testing outside and he was like, you know, do you want a job? I'm like, hell yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, I want a job. You know, so I, he hired me as the head of R and D never having built a parachute before. Uh, and so step one was, you know, to, to get with the girls and, you know, they taught me the, the details of the seams. I was a, a pretty good sewer already, but there's a lot to it. And so, you know, little by little over the course of, uh, less than a year, we were able to release that product. And, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, Tony has had a long and storied career, not only in, uh, parachute design, but also wingsuit design. Yep. Um, and man, how old was he when he stopped base jumping? I don't know exactly. I mean, he's got what, 150 years old now. He was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when Seriously. I was jumping with him, he was, he was no spring chicken, you know, when we were on team airtime. Um, but he's, you know, he's just a natural athlete. He finds a way to get through it and he's been through some pretty scary stuff. You know, he's been hurt and he just believes in himself. I guess that's what it comes down to. He, he knows that he can fix it. So, uh, just before we move on, is there anything that you can say, uh, that might help somebody have a long career? Mm. I mean, you've watched lots of, uh, like historic careers and yours is, uh, yep. getting into the like multiple generations, yeah. anything about like longevity that you can yeah. throw into the mix? Yeah. I mean, you want to minimize luck, right? So to me, that's about learning more as much as you possibly can. Um, and the other side is also willingness to not jump, you know, if you're not feeling right for whatever reason, just wait, you know, wait it out. And there's, there's going to be times when you feel butterflies, that's pretty standard procedure in base jumping, but you had to discern the difference between butterflies and a red flag. Nice. And we're going to get into that, but let's start with education. Yeah. Um, what motivated you to uh, write this book? It, and as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the only book uh, written on skydiving parachute systems. Yeah. Well, at least no, one that goes into any degree of depth, uh, with regards right. to modern techniques. Yeah. Um, well with every book I've ever written, somebody came to me and said, you need to write this book. I'm like, really? Ugh, it's so much work, you know, it really is like, like childbirth, you know, where the, the process of it is not as much fun as the result. Um, I say, I, I like having written, but actually writing is, is, is painful. Uh, uh, this was also an observance of the sport in general, where there's a lack of knowledge around a very important component of how this thing actually works so that you can get the most out of the canopy. So it is very uncommon for anyone in air sports to write something down and 
I, I agree with you. Like that process is incredibly painful. Not only is it painful, but it's also scary to like put down some thoughts mm -hmm. that may or may not be right. It's the best that you know. How did you uh, mm -hmm. overcome that like sickening feeling that most people just kind of like shy away from writing for entirely? Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, that part didn't bother me. And I'm, I'm sort of secure in, in whether people are judging me or not because I know who I am. And I know that I research anything that I'm going to uh, produce and verify as, you know, I believe this is truth. You know, this is scientific fact or whatever. I'm going to research the hell out of it. And I'm going to talk to people who know more than me about the physics, you know, and, and make sure that I've, I've, you know, taken that as far as it'll go. And then I just put my stamp of approval and, and don't really look back until I get evidence that it was wrong, that that paradigm was, was outdated. And that's an important part too that I want to highlight. Uh, you're now in your fifth edition, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. So it has been updated several times since you originally wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And so uh, diving into it, can you give us a brief overview of the book and what it's about? Yeah. Well, I, I get it initially into you know the, the structure and function. You know what what does the thing actually look like? The morphology of a modern parachute you know, the cells and, uh, but you got to very quickly go into the purpose. You know, why does it look like it looks? Well, that's so that it does what it does, that it actually produces lift. And so if we're going to talk about lift, um, we need to talk about the four forces, not just one of them, right? Lift, thrust, drag, and weight and how a change of orientation of the aircraft with respect to its direction of travel will alter those forces and it'll alter the maneuvering capability. So, so that's section one, basically section like the one. fundamental mm -hmm. dynamics of our Ram air parachute system. Yeah. Why does it turn? You know, and th that's actually a much longer story than it sounds. You know, you pull down, yeah. a, you pull down a steering toggle or a rear riser, a front riser, give harness input. Um, they all work in, in subtly different ways in some ways that aren't so subtle. Uh, and the more you understand about that, the more you can do the type of turn that's appropriate for this context. Yeah. I think that's important because then you get away from this idea of don't turn low and you say, well, don't turn like that low, <laughs> turn this way. And then you have the freedom to maneuver. And that's what makes you a pilot, right? The ability and the, the understanding to change your fate, you know, your current vector is towards death. The pilot's job is to avoid that and go in the direction of where you want to go. And that's the second part of the book that yeah. covers the pilot itself. Right. Right, exactly. You know, the, the headspace stuff, you know, mood related and, and self-perception, you know, sort of calibrating and, and, and recalibrating our, our perception of our skills based on actual data points, uh, based on our, our real understanding, right? And you, you don't know what you don't know. Everybody wants to have confidence, right? Because that's what gets you off the cliff and out of the plane or whatever. Uh, but that confidence has to be based in your actual understanding and in, in your, your evidence in the past that, that you've done something similar, right? That seems a foreign concept in parasports specifically. Um, and I wonder why, because like when I was uh, racing motorcycles a lot, there was um, a sentiment that went around. Most of the problems on a motorcycle are caused by the nut that connects the seat to the handlebars. Mm -hmm. And so there was like a lot of uh, training in how to know your own body and your own mind as you're racing around the track. Mm -hmm. But aside from your book, I have seen 
very little, if not no training or information or education on that front at all. Like it's all of our training is based on this is how the toggle works. This is how the parachute system works, which is essentially like giving somebody like a race motorcycle and going, this is how you make it go 200 miles an hour. You pull on this throttle. All right, have, have fun. Um, so like, why do you think that, uh, why do you think our sport has fallen short of that? And, and what should people be, uh, kind of telling themselves as they're getting into a sport where they're just learning the, uh, the application of all this technology? Yeah. Well, the, the mechanics are, are physical, but they're also perceptual, um, as to why we don't talk a lot about that stuff. It, well, it's not really that much part of the training. I mean, we're, we're adding more components that are psychology based, um, you know, a, adrenaline based, you know, how, how much adrenaline is enough, how much is not enough, how much is too much. Uh, we have to keep having that discussion and I, I can't exactly speak to why every instructor is a little different and why they stress what they stress. Um, but if we don't, we're going to, you know, find mixed results. You know, you you get that person that's too nervous. That is, you know, failure to maneuver, uh, when they need to maneuver because they're frozen or the, the extreme case impulsive actions, you know, where they, they do a turn, but too aggressively because they get all that adrenaline. And that's uh, something that you've actually studied as well. Not only do you have a a career in pair sports, but you're also studied in psychology. Am I correct? Yeah, I went to undergrad and grad school in that stuff in psychology. And, uh, you know, my branch of it was more, you know, I started with adventure psych, right? So studying the benefits adventure of adventure and and how that affects us and our our self-perception or self-confidence. Uh, modulating, you know, our fear in any given moment so that it doesn't get too high and you know, losing uh, our capabilities. We get kind of clumsy when we're really freaking out. Um, so and, you know, uh, go ahead. out of uh, curiosity, then, do you have any theories on why people, why we go to like do things that are extreme, like base jump, you know, rock climb, skydive, all of this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different explanations it isn't just a singular one because we're all individually you know motivated you know in, in these uh, unique ways but i think as as uh, a consciousness you know in a body we crave novelty we crave excitement we crave engagement and something that requires my specific actions to actually survive is going to pull me in you know and, and a lot of life is sort of a little bit boring and kind of you're the passenger. But in these moments, you know, you got to be here now. You know, we've said it many times that uh, danger is is forced enlightenment. You know, you're enlightened in the moment (laughs) and you're wide awake. And, and I think that that sensation, uh, maybe not the, the buzz of the, the emotions associated with it, because that creates a negative addiction, right? And you do things that, that uh, require higher and higher perceived levels of risk in inevitably higher and higher, higher and higher actual risk to feel the same level of buzz, you know, cause you get a little numb to it. Um, so that homeostasis of risk is something we need to be aware of and recognize that we can shift our focus in a way that we can get off on something that's not really that dangerous, but we're seeing in a, in a way that's, that's super exciting and, and new and wide awake. You know, to me, that's, that's what it's all about is this, this intense sobering 
of the consciousness in this be here now moment. Wow. Well, uh, going back to education, um, I'd like to get your educational take, your, you know, your expert take on what the educational landscape in mm. skydiving and base jumping looks like. Mm. And I think uh, skydiving is particularly important because it's where the majority of people come into base jumping. I mean, yeah. really what we're focusing on in this podcast is base jumping, but everyone goes through skydiving or most people go through skydiving at some point to get mm -hmm. there and uh, lean on that education in order to uh, bolster or like um, be the base for their base jumping education. So mm -hmm. um, what is the educational landscape in skydiving yeah. look like? Right. Well, I, I think we tend to teach what is fun to teach and we tend to teach what's easy to explain. And so free fall skills, it's not that hard to explain these things. It's simple vectors and it's body positions that you can demonstrate and videos that you can show. Um, and so with typical AFF course, they're going to spend a lot of the time that the lion's share of the training on dirt diving and hanging harness training, things that are easy to quantify, easy to explain and test. But uh, the canopy flight, for instance, is a little bit harder in, in some ways, especially when we talk about maneuvering. Uh, there's more to it. And so, you know, they spend a little bit of time, but because it's hard to explain and it makes the instructor slightly uncomfortable to not feel confident, you know, because you got to go into that space of, all right, here's how I understand it, blah, 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 blah. And then you look into the eyes of your student, did they get it or not? You know, is that light bulb on? And then you have to stop and go, all right, here's another way to look at it, right? That reiteration to me, that's what makes a great instructor. And that's an uncomfortable dis space, right? You're moving out of first gear into second gear. And in, in between, there's this neutral of, you know, the ego is like, I don't know what to do. I want to feel confident in my space as the instructor. Oh, man, absolutely. I can relate to that. Um, you know, I got my AFF rating just for fun because mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to sign off my friends. And so I did it at the bare minimum that I could, mm -hmm. like 500 jumps. I knew nothing about nothing. And, you know, I went through the training, I passed the courses and then our drop zone asked me to start teaching. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know that I'm prepared for this. Mm -hmm. And the toughest section for me was the parachute part. Yep. Like I found myself like hoping that people wouldn't ask too many questions because up until that point, I had been trained extensively on body flight, yep. on safety procedures, on all of these things. And I could answer all those questions down to the fundamental details. But the only thing that was required of me to get my AFF rating was that I land my parachute accurately a couple times. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. yep. And so like, I found myself completely unprepared to meet the demands of like some student who knows nothing about parachuting, never seen a parachute before. Mm -hmm. Trying for me to explain all of that in theory to them was yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. And so naturally we're going to gravitate towards things like trusting that the radio will work. Right. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, really? I mean, the Norwegians, the Swedes, they don't use radios for their AFF students. They don't need them. And as a result of, of the really intense attention that you get by your student when you tell them, hey, you're on your own once that par parachute opens, you know, they, they go into greater depth because of this uh, sort of, you know, more intense relationship, right? Because the student really is, is concerned. Um, they spend more time 
And we can take them on in hops where you jump into other places off the drop zone, usually right after they get off student status. Sure, we're doing an in hop. It's not a really sketchy one, relatively wide open field. And here's what it looks like. And you just throw them out of the plane and they land on the target. Okay. So um, as while we're talking about educational landscape and skydiving, I've got a story to tell you uh, from a longstanding USPA SNTA core member. Um, examiner, like been in the educational field there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to get your take on it. So uh, he told me that uh, a while back, the USPA paid uh, some independent uh, researchers to study their educational material and go through various programs around the country and give them kind of a review, you know, like, how are we doing educationally? Uh, They came back And the conclusion was that they could not understand why more people were not dying initially. And yeah, I'm I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. They're like, you know, we did all this and and we think that like your death rate should be like triple to quadruple because like if we read through your incidents, all of these incidents have to do with flying the parachute. Right. And if we look at your educational materials like the sim and like the things that you've prescribed for like initial student mm-hmm. education and like, you know, progression, there's next to nothing here. It's like if, if yeah. yeah, right. Like if you were to just drop all of your materials off to us and that was all we had to do to be able to learn how to skydive, they're like 80% of us would be dead because from what we've gleaned from like going through some of these educational processes <laughs> is that all these people end up having to pick up the pieces just like from their friends. I don't know. Like, you know, like how, how did Camp- the- Yeah. Hanging so, at the campfire. Right? That's we tend to do, you know, sort of informal education with drunk people. <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. So what do you make of that? Like the, the third party people coming back and going like, how come more people aren't dying? So like, yeah. can you answer that question I, of like, why are more people not dying? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we, we do have our sort of natural understanding of, you know, if the parachute's over your head, it's probably going to land you softer. If you point into the wind, you know, um, all you know, the other, the intuitive stuff that a human being just has, you know, going into the situation, but the gear is also making up for a lot. You know, the parachutes have become very good. You take a a typical student canopy compared to 30 years ago. It lands softer. The flare is tremendous. It doesn't want to surge if you let off the brakes quite as intensely as uh, as the canopy's used to. Um, So that's that's certainly a big part of it. And reliance on the radio, you know, if the radio operator does a good job, (laughs) you know, they can point you into the wind and give you a decent flare altitude. Um, but you know, those, it's a crutch, man. We gotta, we gotta get off crutches and teach more and take more time with our students. Nice. Okay. And we're going to get into some of those details. And before we do just, uh, another quick aside for everyone that getting into parachuting and, um, about to take their like a licenses or whatever else, uh, Talking on the radios was also not something that is uh, required of an AFF instructor to get their rating. They don't have to do that ever. Mm -hmm. And so like you might be under parachute listening to somebody who is doing that for the first time and not actually joking about that when they go like, that's my first time on the radios. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. And there's no really clear training program for how to do that. And it's very hard to do it well. 
Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that we can give some people uh, a bit to uh, think about off the radios, uh, maybe like be able to land their parachute uh, if their instructor does not give them the right uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. Let's get into some fundamental dynamics. Uh, I think you're one of the few people who can actually take on explaining uh, lift, stall, and drag without mm -hmm. like a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us some of the fundamental dynamics so that uh, we have like a basis to continue like in parachute education. Yeah. Well, in simplest terms, lift is your redirection of the air mass in the general direction of down. The air, the, the, the wing is an air pump is the way I think of it. So that curved shape of the airfoil, uh, as you drag your wing towards the earth with the nose down attitude caused by the lines being shorter at the front than they are at the back, causes this forward motion and the forward motion inflates the airfoil, the wing shape. And that wing shape has this very uh, specific airfoil curve that redirects the airflow. The air actually sticks to the, to the wing as it goes past it. We, you know, we call that the coanda effect. It's due to the, the stickiness of the, the, the viscosity. And the air following the curve then gets thrown downward. And there is an acceleration of the airflow as it follows that curve that generates aspects of our lift, the lower pressure generated by the air following the curve, uh, but also the, 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 the weight of the air being thrown down behind you is generating lift. And the, the downwash principle, we call that, call that one. Uh, but you gotta move forward, right, to make that work. And so when you, when you slow down the wing, um, one of the problems with our version of a wing is that it requires forward motion to create internal pressure adequate to allow it to get through the turbulence, right? So if you slow down that airfoil significantly by pulling on the brakes, for instance, it's not the only way, now the wing becomes softer and it's more susceptible to, to taking collapses. Uh, and yeah. I want to talk about speed before we get too far, because mm -hmm. I think this is a really important aspect that a lot of jumpers uh, don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and you go th through this in detail in your book about the faster you go, the more lift you generate, and mm -hmm. not just uh, the more, like not just more, but exponentially more. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, drag too, right? And drag and is drag not, too. Drag's not necessarily a bad thing with a ram air canopy. Right. So but can you uh, all, can you briefly explain to us the importance of speed and that exponential relationship, the law of squares? Right, right. Well, so when you look at a parachute sort of flying through the sky, there is a balance of forces of lift, thrust, drag, and weight. Um, and so there's really two opposing forces, uh, two different pairs. So you have the, the, the weight pulling downward and the lift pulling upward in general. And then you have this forward motion, that's that thrust that's caused by the forward tilt of the canopy. You're kind of uh, uh, like a, a sled, you know, cruising forward. And the pullback, the resistance as you move through the airflow um, is, is really uh, a significant component to the stability. If you didn't have drag, the canopy could very easily tilt forward. So if you visualize the canopy moving forward, um, where that parachute is over your head, whether it's behind you or in front of you, is going to determine that parachute's relationship to the relative wind, to the airflow caused by your motion through the air. And if the canopy can surge forward of you, where you're actually behind the canopy, now it, it has the capability of achieving a uh, significant amount of negative lift, 
where the airflow under the wing is greater than the airflow upward, right, over the top. And so you don't have as much upward lift. You got more downward lift and the wing wants to fly at you. <laughs> you get line slack. And that's where you get significant deformation, you know, full frontal collapses, sometimes asymmetric collapses, because this doesn't always happen uniformly across the span. Uh, and so the faster you fly, the more drag you generate. And that drag is not only increasing the internal pressure of the airfoil, I say airspeed is Viagra for your canopy, <laughs> but it's also generating more drag to prevent the surge. And so I say, we'll test this theory. Go to full speed, maybe a little faster than full speed, you know, generate a little turn, and then you hit the brakes and let them off quick. The canopy's not going to surge much. It's because it has this, this invisible set of, you know, a billion tiny pilot shoots pulling back on the canopy itself. It resists a negative pitch change, right? So nose up and nose down on your airfoil is called pitch. Whereas then you slow down, let's say you put in half brakes. You leave it in half breaks. You give it the three or four seconds that it takes to, to lose that airspeed, and then you lift your hands up quick. Now the bottom drops out, right? It feels like somebody yeah. cut you away a little bit as the canopy tilts towards a ne negative pitch angle. You lose lift because you have a lower angle of attack. The angle of your wing to the relative wind uh, is now a lower angle, and it's not producing as much lift because lift is about airspeed and angle of attack in synergistic cooperation. That's pretty cool. Uh, while you were explaining that, I was imagining like a parachute without any drag, if, if that could be theoretically yeah. possible, and me just doing like an infinite tumble. Exactly. Straight, like Throw, Front flips. That is, <laughs> front if flips. Scotty beamed us up with our given forces, right? Beamed us up into space, and there was suddenly no drag component, but we had the same amount of energy in every system, you would go into a series of front flips with the canopy going around you. Absolutely. So, okay. Uh, while we're on these like theoretical explanations, is there a way that you can like quantify, um, this concept so that we can understand it, uh, as you get closer, uh, to landing, if you slow down your parachute, uh, you get exponentially less lift and this thing, like, you know, a lot of people, I see a lot of people doing, uh, you know, a landing and like, they have like a really hard step, you know, on the yeah. concrete or something. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're confused because like they were only approaching at quarter breaks, you know, right. and yep. you know, they're Low like, speed. well, I was only going a little slower than normal. Yep. It makes a difference. Well, the part of it is if they're holding some brakes or they're steering with their toggles right before landing, when you pull down on the back of the parachute, you're not just adding drag, you're pinching off the airfoil, you're reducing the volume of your wing. And when you let up on both brakes or a single brake, you're reducing the volume, so you're increasing the volume and you're, re you're reducing the pressure. So the airfoil wants to surge forward simply because you got off that input and it doesn't take much. And so you unload the lines and you make the canopy softer and dive in front of you. And then you try to hit the flare and the parachute's not listening anymore, right? Because it went to line slack. It's not paying attention to you. Um, so there's that aspect. And I just want to make sure I include that too. But as you reduce airspeed on approach, it changes the value of your input inch for inch. For inch. Let's say you're in full speed with your hands you know, all the way up. Um, if you tension the brake lines, you bring the hands down to where you're at the activation point where the brakes are tight. You haven't pulled the tail down. All right, let's, that's where I think people should be before the flare. 
with the tail up with the brakes tight, not in full flight with your hands all the way up with your brake lines trailing in slack with, you know, putting a delay in your flare. If you were to hit that initial pulse, let's say you pull down six inches, nice and sharp, the amount of lift that you generate and how quickly your pitch moves, how quickly your canopy goes behind you and you translate that airspeed into lift is going to be pretty abrupt, right? And you're going to feel that increase in G's. The weight gain is indicating that you change direction of flight because your inertia wanted you to keep going down and forward, right? And, you know, base canopy, you might be looking at a little over two to one glide ratio for every one foot down, two feet forward, it might be a little better. And now I'm trying to level off, right? And so I'm going to gain weight above one G in that process. The resistance is, is my inertia. Well, if I slow down, now being in, let's say, half brakes, if I just pull that same input of six inches, this, the same speed of input, the same power of it, it's, it might not even level me off. I, I, I will have to go bigger in the motion and possibly more aggressively. So when I say the value of the input, it's based on the airspeed context. And that's about where your hands are. If your hands are high, you got more speed. Obviously, it's also about the, the historical context of your flight. If you just came out of a turn, you know, your recent history is going to supercharge your energy. You, you just have to tap on the brakes two inches and you level off. Right? Does that wow. make sense? So yeah. the amount that you're giving the input is really needs to be um, not an automatic, unconscious process of flaring to a certain place relative to your body, but to a sensation of lift, of an increase in your weight indicating a change of direction in flight. And you just got to program yourself. If I'm a little slow, I got to give a bigger motion and it's got to yeah. be, you know, sort of sharp. Yeah. And uh, man, this is another interesting aspect that you brought up about deforming the wing and like actually uh, erasing some of the um, lifting surface area. Mm -hmm. You know, when I initially stated that it would be an exponential loss in lift, that adds another component that takes away even more. So mm -hmm. like, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, if, if I had a dollar's worth of lift coming in at full flight, mm -hmm. then I reduce my speed by half. And I also reduce my canopy by a quarter by pulling down the, uh, the trailing edge, you know, mm -hmm. now I'm looking at like what, 35 cents, 40 cents. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's Man. funny that you say that because I, I do refer often to uh, airspeed as money in the bank. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this way, you, you go on a road trip, you, you want to have money for the unconsidered possibilities. And so your maneuvering capability comes from your airspeed, which is why you see most experienced people, whenever possible, coming in hot, if it's appropriate. So uh, what do you think of people uh prescribing their first jump first base jump having never flown the canopy that they're going to mm, base jump yeah that doesn't make a lot of sense is <laughs> that something it? that you guys did back in the day i mean no we were jumping our skydiving canopies i knew that parachute inside and out you know with with my hundred jumps when i made my first base jump off the bridge um, but i knew that cruise air you know i had exercised it and why can't we i guess there's real no no reason. Why can't we just take base canopies, tutor drop zone, stick them in a student rig or something like that? Just swap out the risers and do a hop and pop. Make sure the pilot slows down the plane. You might want a sail slider instead of a mesh slider, depending on 
you know, how quickly it's designed to opening, you know, if it's an ultra low free fall parachute, yeah, you might want to do something to slow the opening so your shoes don't fall off. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, have the altitude to not only try exercises, but reduce adrenaline. You know, it takes yeah. time, you know, so you do something radical, you try something new, you know, can I slip the canopy? You know, what if I pull on the left front riser and the right toggle so I can sink it in kind of a weird way? It, it actually is very effective for certain things. But uh, after I do that, I got a higher heart rate because I did something novel, something that, you know, put me out of my comfort zone. And now I got to reset, you know, in getting open well above 3000 feet is going to give you the opportunity to do your tests with a clear mind, you know, in between each exercise. So while we're talking about exercises, I know that you've got uh, some coursework centered around what you call essential flight maneuvers. Yeah. Um, while we have our canopy out in the skydiving environment, uh, what are some things that we should be working on? What are some things that we should know? Yep. Well, there's the, the, the primary categories are, are turning, lots to talk about with turning, and then flaring. And then there's the overlap zone between the two, <laughs> you know, we're doing a bit of both, you know, so that's necessary for safe canopy piloting. Um, so turning is about a balance. It's about a balance of the amount of roll that you're generating, right? So picture a kayak rolling over um, that axis, longitudinal axis, front to back. And then you have yaw, which is your heading change or the compass changing, right? So you can picture just your swivel chair. And so the balance of those two in, in uh, the proportion is going to generate either an uncoordinated turn where you're sliding to the side in the process of the turn or an actual coordinated flight maneuver where the airflow is straight from front to back throughout the maneuver. Oh, man. Okay. So uh, while you said that, I just remembered like uh, at least a dozen videos that have come up on uh, this page called Birds, which is mm -hmm. our base incident reporting um, mm -hmm. page on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And there are so many uh, incidents where somebody's coming into a treed area mm -hmm. and they think that they are just going to like turn on a dime because like you see their whole pattern. You're like, oh, they think they're going to like just yep. pivot right in there. And then all, yep. all of a sudden they start washing sideways yeah. and they basically like hit the, like the trees feet first. And then like the bottom skin of their canopy is like, you know, burying itself sideways into the treescape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's not a go-kart where you can just crank the wheel over and just go where you want to go. You don't have that friction to the earth. So you have to generate lift in the direction you want to go. And that requires roll. You got to, you got to really gimbal on the roll axis and the toggle is not the right tool, especially at high speed. Because if I pull down a steering toggle, it's actually inverted input compared to an airplane. I'm pulling down on that side. It wants to lift that wingtip up. It, the, the forces initially want to roll me the wrong way. It's adding drag to that side of the parachute, pulling it back very much like a rudder pedal, right? It's yeah. yaw axis input, really, if you think about a, a toggle input. And so if you bury a toggle at high speed, it's, it's resisting the forces that you want. It's getting too much yaw and a tendency to get inverted roll, but that goes away very quickly because you've slowed down the inboard wing tip and the, the balance, you know, right wing to left wing in terms of the amount of lift that it's generating is quite different in a, in a turn where there's a lot of yaw going on because the outboard wing tip generates more lift and it rises up. Despite the fact that you have flared the other side of the parachute trying to lift it up, 
Uh, and so toggles really, you got to be either very, very finesseful at the beginning of the turn where you're either oscillating the input on and off gently to begin the process, or you're, you're just coaxing it very slowly. I say, buy her a drink first. You know, you don't, <laughs> you, you don't just, you know, pull out your crazy sex toys. You got to, you know, sort of get the, the, the energy of the turn gently rolling in the direction you want, where you point the lift where you want to go. It's the only force that you have to negate the inertia that wants you to go straight. While you're saying that, it kind of reminded me of uh, drift racing, e-brake yep. turn. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a time for that, I suppose. Uh, but if you're actually trying to do a maneuver near the ground where you're going to need lift soon, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where where you know you want to be able to flare during the turn. You know, talk about that that process right. of converting airspeed into lift. Well, you don't have to wait till the turn's done to start generating extra lift if the ground happens to be coming, and you don't have to you know, finish in the turn at all necessarily. But if you increase the lift vector in the process of the turn, you shorten the recovery arc, right? The amount of time and altitude for that same maneuver, for that same heading change. So what um, would be the better way to do yeah. it to avoid uh, people like getting stuffed into the trees sideways? Well, there's, there's a lot of better ways. It's not a singular, uh, which is okay. cool. I think that's great. You know, so you've got options as, as a pilot and, and the selection needs to be based on what you're comfortable with. And that's what you've practiced, not what you, you know, convinced yourself that you're comfortable. Yeah. With. We're not telling people to go out there right now and just change like, no, but no. Uh, if, uh, you know, they were able to like practice this in a less or a more forgiving environment. Yep. Uh, what were, what are some of the ways that that turn could be cleaned up? Right. Well, so the, the most clean way to turn a ram air canopy is using using uh, displacement of the weight to one side of the parachute like a hang glider leaning to one side giving harness input uh, in that that direct roll axis manipulation you know using that body input is going to create a, a coordinated turn now how no matter how hard you give it and a really aggressive harness input will turn the canopy where the yaw axis angle of attack remains zero does it make sense if I word it that way? Yeah. Right. So the angle of attack is simply a relationship of the aircraft to the relative wind. And it's not only about pitch. It's not about nose up and nose down only. And if you bury a steering toggle or you slam your foot on the rudder pedal of an airplane, suddenly you're pointed to one side and you're sliding towards one wingtip. Um, and so that's what the toggles want to do, especially if you're not, you know, sort of graceful and, and, and gentle in your beginning of the turns and the ending of the turns, right? Also very significant. Uh, so rolling, you know, with, with correct body input is really important. The chest strap being loosened on a skydiving wing and maybe a higher altitude deployment on a base jump, you might have that opportunity, but you know, you watch a typical base jumper, they don't have the time. Yeah. But you can give harness input by, you know, rolling your hips. If you, if you instinctively lift your knees and sit down, maybe push forward on the risers and lift your knees higher than your hips, you can and sit down. And let's just real quickly yep. uh, highlight that point, because yep. I think this yep. is something that base jumpers don't do at all. Yep. Um, or very seldom do I see base jumpers do it. And it's the one thing that allows me to feel any type of harness uh, turn. Yep. And that's the seated position that you just mm -hmm. uh, talked about. Can you yep. just yep. quickly cover that? Yeah. Well, if you push forward on your risers at the three rings and lift your knees higher than your hips and wiggle your ass like you're trying to burrow your butt into the sand at the beach, the natural uh, result is that your leg straps move towards your knees a little bit. Not a lot, but enough that you've got more 
femur authority, I suppose you could call it. So you're actually not just tipping your pelvis, you know, one side up and one side down, but your, your legs, your upper legs are actually part of the equation now. So you're expanding your control range for the, what I call acerons, right? Instead of alerons, now it's acerons. <laughs> yeah. And now to add to that, uh, let's say your chest strap is really tight and you know you sit down you lay into a turn on that that 280 or whatever it is and it doesn't want to turn so fast so your instinct is going to be to pull a toggle and it's not the only option right you also have rear riser turns which can still be uncoordinated if you bury it sharply especially in the initial input because again it's increasing the angle of attack on the wrong side of the parachute right it's opposite to ailerons but if you, let's say you want to turn right, if with your left hand, you reach to the inside of the riser group, front and rear uh, on the left side, and you push outward, it pushes your body into the turn to the low side. So even if you don't have that tremendous authority that, that's afforded a pilot with a very loosened chest strap, you can yeah. still push out on that riser group and, and generate a very coordinated turn. And, and once that roll begins, you can enhance the turn and quicken it by adding a steering toggle. Once it gets going, you might choose to get off of that, that riser input, right? The front and rear on the outside of the turn that you're pushing away from yourself. You get off of it completely and bump both toggles and carve that turn at a higher angle of attack, um, generating both line tension and lift, you know, the lift causes the line tension and then you don't hook in and you actually get a rock star landing with a little bit more energy. And let's uh, just give one other option because um, while that is excellent for skydiving, uh, a lot of the base canopies don't respond very well to harness input. Um, so what's another thing that somebody could do? And we don't need the whole explanation because I'd love to get into some other topics, mm -hmm. but like another tactic that they might be able to practice for a sharper turn that doesn't drift as much. Yeah. Well, you, you got to generate roll. Bottom line is it's, there's, you know, if you pull on the low side riser group near the three ring, it, it will generate a more coordinated turn. If you push on the outside, even on a rectangular shaped, you know, two to one aspect ratio wing, I'm telling you, it's going to turn. It, it, it will. It's just people don't test it. They don't realize gotcha. it. But if you feather the input, right, if all you're going to do is just you know, hang in the harness in a neutral manner and you want to generate a coordinated turn, you can gently add, add that toggle sort of on and off, get it coaxing into the role that you want. And once it's there, you can deepen and steepen into the, the input on that low hand and then hit both brakes in the process to tension up the lines once you've got the roll angle. And now you've got a, a pretty nice, you know, relatively high speed, high angle of attack coordinated turn with balanced forces. So it's kind of like imagining that you're like sliding on ice or like, you know, bringing a boat into port kind of like mm -hmm. if you turn it too hard, you're going to lose complete authority if you're yep. easy with it and you start getting the the fluid that you're in to move in the right direction with mm -hmm. you, then all of a sudden you can add a little bit more energy into that turn and, right. and cut. Yeah, okay, exactly. I understand. Yep. Yeah, so uh, the inertia doesn't want to change direction. You know what I mean? It's it's very linear and conservative. It just wants to keep doing what it's doing, and you got to begin with a little bit of uh, finesse. Buy her a drink first. Exactly. You got it. You got it. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So um, 
We've got a couple of common misconceptions that have been thrown to me from uh, some people uh, that follow our program uh, that I'd love for you to respond to. Um, the first misconception, or maybe it's just like a misunderstanding, um, or maybe it's right, who knows? Mm -hmm. But here it is. Uh, as you're traveling downwind, mm. you are making your final approach turn, right? Like, let's just imagine that you're doing like a, a button hook 180 mm -hmm. and the conception is that or the idea is that the faster the wind is the higher or higher the wind speed um the lower i can make that turn because mm -hmm. as i get into the wind the wind will essentially pick me up right yeah i've heard that one too yep yeah along with the uh easter bunny and <laughs> Lots of other <laughs> mythology. You know, I mean, you could dress up like the Easter Bunny, but it doesn't make it real. So, yeah, the, there's an illusion, right? So there's this visual experience on one hand of, of what you're doing relative to the planet. And then you have this, this other reality called the lift, thrust, drag, and weight in your parachute, right? So as you're flying through the sky, you're in the sky, you're part of the sky. And the way that if you're in a hot air balloon, perfect example, and you're not going up or down, right? And I'm sure many of you have. Um, if you're not climbing or descending, it becomes very quiet. You know, if the burner's not, you know, singeing the top of your hair, which is why hats are a good idea. <laughs> and if, let's say it's windy, right? We don't do that often, but sometimes you're jumping when there is some wind and, and you see the, the, the hot air balloon is cruising across the ground. You can light a candle and it'll still remain lit. Because there is no airspeed, there's only you being part of the sky, like a lily pad going down a river. Um, and so whether you're facing with the wind, crosswind, or into the wind, your airspeed will only be modulated by what you do with your parachute, right? If I front rise or I go faster, I hit the brakes, I go slower, but it has nothing to do with my orientation with the wind. Same speed. So therefore, since the lift, thrust, drag, and weight are, are basically unaffected, uh, by this stuff, only turbulence is going to affect that and density altitude. Um, the recovery arc is unaffected. You know, whether you're turning into the wind or to downwind, uh, you'll notice that if you actually look at the numbers, right, you collect data, we got FlySight and all these cool toys um, to verify that, yeah, if you do a 180 degree turn, you know, from this orientation to that, and you keep changing that orientation with respect to a strong wind, your recovery arc won't change. So why does it seem like it does? Like why, right. like, is there yes. a reason why we're perceiving it that way? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Cause if you're, if you're in a run and you're moving really, really fast, there is this sensation from your visual field that as you begin the turn, you're, you're sort of still sliding sideways, right? In the process of the turn, instead of doing this, you know, 180 U-turn in terms of your path along the ground, now it's more like a fish hook. And so you don't actually stop that side slide or that, you know, sort of sliding, you know, uh, let's say I'm doing a left turn, I'm sliding to my right. It doesn't happen. Uh, the reduction in ground speed doesn't happen until I get mostly into the wind, right? If I'm 90 degrees to the wind line, I'm still sliding to the side at the speed of the wind. And so that creates this illusion. And, and, and uh, we call this the, the downwind demon. It, it sometimes results in people hooking in where they're in a run and they start turning the canopy and it feels like it's turning slower than it should. And so they deepen into the turn, they increase roll angle. 
you know, because they feel like, oh, I'm slipping away from my location. And it's not actually turning slower as far as the yaw is concerned. It's not losing more or less altitude than it would otherwise, unless turbulence is somehow involved, which it could be if it's windy, of course. Uh, but that's more likely going to you know, increase the amount of altitude that you lose in the turn, unless you're talking about catching a thermal. Um, so you, you then have this experience when you get all the way or into the wind, everything sort of stops you. Go, oh, look at all this lift. Um, no, it's, it's not more or less lift. If, if you're experiencing lift and float, it's either a thermal or the speed generated from the turn causing increase in lift and drag pitching the canopy to a higher angle of attack with, uh, you know, that the net result being enough lift to match your weight value. And that's called level flight. So along the same lines, there's another misconception I've been asked to ask you, uh, which you just touched on. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, when I'm running downwind, I start to make a turn and it feels like my canopy's not turning at all. And you see this all the time at the bridge where there's like mm -hmm. a consistent um, tailwind. Yep. Like a, a beginning student will come over the trees, start turning their canopy to try and get back into the wind. But then they get so scared because they're like, oh, my canopy's oh. not turning. And if I continue doing like if I continue turning at this rate, I'm going to like hit the ground. And yep. so they elect to just downwind into the boulders and it's, mm -hmm. you know, epic. Yep. Yeah. The turn rate doesn't change, but the ground track does. Right. So again, visualizing that no wind curve, right. Given a 180 degree turn, it's just literally a U-turn on the ground with, you know, an uh, equal radius throughout the process. But if you have a tailwind at the beginning of the turn, even though your yaw rate is the same, the roll rate's the same, you're slipping with the wind more. You just got to add up the vectors. It's just a triangle. You got, you know, if you look down, you've got your ground speed vector and then you have the wind. And as you change the wind, uh, sorry, change your orientation to the wind, you'll have, especially in the run, uh, running crab phase, the perception, oh, I'm sliding sideways. And all it really means is you have to move your turn location further into the wind. Right. So let's let's say I want to hit a target. And it's a really windy day. If I'm headed in a run from the upwind side of things, I'm used to passing the target and then turning. But when it's windy, I need to turn at the target or before the target so that in the process of that first you know, phase of my turn, it's, it's drifting away. It's now it's, it's drifting into the lane that I want to be in. And it's not going to stop drifting until I get past that, you know, the, the base leg vector. So you're saying that like this illusion that your canopy is not turning is based on our expectation that mm -hmm. like, as soon as I like push the toggle, yep. uh, you know, down that I'm actually going to be starting to move towards the target. But mm -hmm. it, like, because I'm in this, you know, big wind packet, like mm -hmm. I'm, it's going to take me a while to actually physically move towards the target. Yep. Uh, it, when I'm facing sideways, I'm still going to be moving away, which is going to like, kind of feel like I'm not turning at all. <laughs> yep, exactly. But that's all in my head. And I just have to displace all my pattern points into the wind. And the stronger the wind is, you know, the more I have to anticipate that turn from downwind to base before I get to the target. And if I begin the turn too soon, it's so easy to solve that. You know, if I'm doing a right-hand traffic pattern, I start the turn and like, oh, I'm still kind of right over the top of it. So you turn a little left away from the target, you drift with it. You can add some brakes in that process to increase your glide ratio downwind by reducing the, the descent rate. The sky has a little, you know, opportunity time to drift you further away. 
um, you know, the, the base leg doesn't have to be a 90 degree turn where you hold that, you know, it's, it's a, a negotiation, you know what I mean? I'm sort of playing with a little bit of this, a little of that, you know, I feel like, you know, at the, the market in, in Dubai, you go to the souks or whatever, they give you a price. You don't have to accept that price, you know, and, and in canopy flight, you know, it's, it's very much the same thing. The universe is going to keep offering you shit sandwiches to eat and you're going to have to say, no, thank you. You know what I mean? I'd like the other sandwich with, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's the pilot's job, you know, to put yourself in a power position where you're always turning a little early and pulling a little higher than you need to. And, you know, that's how you get old. You know, you just try to be on the power side of things as opposed to going, for instance, too far past the target. And, you know, you just don't have the ability to get back unless you know, All right. where, unless you know where your rear risers are. I want to talk power and shit sandwich for a second. Um, there's a last, yeah, seriously. Uh, the last part of your uh, first section of the book that I want to um, cover uh, on the podcast is turbulence. Mm -hmm. uh, because also it's something that is not taught at all really in skydiving other than theory. But when you get into base jumping, it's almost assured that you're going to have to fly through some turbulence because right. we commonly jump in at least some wind sure. and we're always landing in the middle of like a cityscape or, you know, behind mm -hmm. trees or in some, but so yep. what can you give us on flying in turbulence? Yeah. Well, I, I would begin by uh, seeing in your mind the projected wind shadows, right? So if, if wind was light, where would be the dark places? Uh, and so you begin with, with trying to find the channels of clean airflow, you know, whenever possible, you know, I, I approach my landing spot in my approach angle, uh, from the perspective of, would I fly a kite here? And if I wouldn't fly a kite here, now I know I'm going into, you know, kind of a, a chaotic situation where, um, I may find suddenly a reduction in my pitch angle because I've got less drag and now the canopy is trying to drive in ahead of me to line slack. And I have to respond to that. I have to go into that with enough airspeed that I've got control over my parachute. I've got to have line tension at the moment that I need to make a decisive action. But that action is, uh, is pretty simple. You need to feel the loss of weight and the negative pitch change where the canopy starts to go forward and you need to give an aggressive bump on your toggles to move the canopy back a little bit to a higher angle of attack and you'll feel the G's come back, you know, the lines get tight and now you're good for that moment. And then you allow your, can your hands gently back up if you still have altitude to generate the speed that's going to, you know, create the resilience in your canopy to hit the next pocket of, you know, shitty air. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and the other part of course is flying coordinated turns so that you go into every interface with chaos in balance, right? So that you, you have, uh, you know, line tension, but also your, your, your wing is facing at the relative wind throughout the turn. And one of the yeah. things that you can do is watch your pilot shoot. Right. So if you just sharply hit a steering toggle, you know, with a balance of forces, you know, where you're just cruising along at your natural glide ratio at one G, watch your pilot shoot and you'll see it go off to one wingtip. That's not a coordinated turn. Right. So you want to be flying in this graceful way where you're carving your turn like you carve your skis or your snowboard, where you look back behind you, you see nothing but train tracks. You know, you're not skidding your tails out. Yeah, that actually took me back to motorcycle racing for a second mm -hmm. too, where, you know, 
if you were in a sharp turn that was coordinated, that was tight, mm-hmm. you know, you could hit some rumbles and it would be no problem. Yep. But if you're sliding and you're hitting the rumbles, like mm-hmm. that's, that's it. That's loss of the bike completely gone. Yep. It's going to go out from under you. And in this case, it's a collapse. Yeah. Right. And it can is something we must talk about here is, is, you know, we, we try to prevent by good flying you know, by good discernment of where we fly, you know what I mean? I'm not going to fly in the worst possible location unless I absolutely have to in terms of the turbulence. But uh, once it happens, you got to know what to do, right? So if the, if the canopy has a full frontal collapse where the canopy actually goes negative in its angle of attack and the A-lines roll back, it can just be the center cell. We call, we'll call that a frontal fortune cookie. It can be the whole span where the bottom drops out, you, you have no lift at all, you're dropping more or less straight down initially. Um, and then the canopy's natural recovery cycle is to go behind you because it's just a drag body now. And then the, the relative wind hits the bottom surface, right? Almost like 90 degree angle of attack, you know, like on opening. And then it repressurizes the bottom surface and then the nose collects, uh, you know, air pressure inside the wing and then it surges forward and it wants to go again. He wants to collapse yeah. again. So to practice keeping your parachute over your head, I think really is, is the beginning of, of a resilient way to fly your canopy. You add brakes and then you let them off quick and you feel that surge, feel that loss of weight. Well, that's kind of like a mini collapse. Well, if I let off the brakes quickly and as the canopy is on its way forward, I reapply those brakes. And as the canopy starts to return to center, I lift my hands and then it may dive again after the words. I add the brakes again. So with diminishing amplitude is probably the best scientific way to describe that. I'm going to be giving opposing input to keep the canopy over my head. And uh, this is also something that you talk about in the book about uh, maintaining gravitational force, like in the harness, like maintaining uh, your yep. weight in the harness as yep. like a, a feedback mm-hmm. that you are uh, parachute overhead. Absolutely. That's what generates uh, the stability. So that's an awful lot that you've given us. And we're going to kind of take a quick break from the technical side of, of parachuting. Um, and I'd like to ask you, uh, why this information is not readily more readily available uh, in the USPA progression. And I'm going to ask you this question with a couple of things that I've heard from them, yeah. um, which I hope are not taken as me talking shit, but me like lighting a fire mm-hmm. under uh, the asses of everybody involved in the USPA, because like I'm over here kind of scratching my head. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah. I'm scratch- I was scratching my head in 2017, 18, which is where we started this conversation, you and I. Yep. Um, and since then, I've I've gone back and forth with the USPA uh, about updating the SIM to include some of the information that Brian's talking about, or to simply uh, recommend his book as part of the like student packet of stuff. Like not just, you know, not like required, but like, hey, this is available and out there because before I knew it was out there, I knew very little about parachuting. And I was like surprised when I started reading your book about how much I didn't know. Hmm. So uh, with that said, here are a couple of things uh, that I'd like uh, some uh, clarification, your perspective on one of the people involved in updating the skydiving Uh, student progression, um, their response to me was that your book was not vetted Mm. and so could not be recommended. 
Mm, I don't know. They read it at the Air Force Academy. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they'd call me out if it was wrong. <laughs> you know, it's been out for an awfully long time. And, and uh, you know, I, I tried to be careful about how I presented this stuff and tried to present it in a way that was very intelligible but factual. Um, and after thousands and thousands of copies, and it's not all, you know, sort of regular people reading it. It's also, some of them are like airline pilots, fighter pilots, astronauts. They read it. If, if it, if I was full of shit, they would have said so by now. So I would call that vetted. Yeah. And, uh, not to, uh, also to mention this, you are part of the like instructor core, mm. correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a safety and training advisor. Right. And wouldn't it be on the uh, instructor core itself to vet your I'm like, what what would they be expecting? I don't understand that. Like, it seems like if they wanted to vet it, everyone in the instructor core should pick it up right now, read it and yep. then say, like, you know, we think he's right here. We think he needs amendments there. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure. I, I think that USBA wants to stay out of the commercial side of things and not take sides. But there's no other side. <laughs> well, was, okay. You know, so, there's nobody else has really step, and, stepped up. And that's my point. Like if they were willing to step up their game, um, then there wouldn't be a necessity to, you know, promote somebody's book. And so here is, here's the second thing that I've heard from them. Um, if we, uh, if we recommend your book, we would then also have to recommend anyone else's, uh, book on the subject for fairness. They're and we don't want to great promote promote books. I mean, unless it's written by somebody you know with only an A license, you know, if if it is truthful information, that's great. We need more perspectives and more ways to describe these things. That's fine, right? So, like, where does that argument come from? Like the slippery slope argument, the logical mm -hmm. fallacy that like if we recommend one book, we'll have to recommend learning by reading entirely. I don't, I don't yeah. get it. Yep. Well, we there's many forces in the human consciousness and we must recognize that one of them is fear you know fear of having you know the other people assailing you for the choices that you made is 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 a very real deal you know the fear of, of, of shame and looking stupid or whatever so that might be one of the forces okay moving on to the next thing mm -hmm. um i heard from the uspa president and uh this is 2018 when i actually got it oh. onto uh their like uh, for lack of a better term, ballot initiatives mm -hmm. um, for them to vote on revamping the SIM, which mm -hmm. like if you are at all wondering why I'm like harping on this subject, it's because the SIM has two diagrams total in it to describe parachute flight and one of them's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that hasn't been updated for 30 years. I don't even know how long. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to say that we're like behind the times, I think is an understatement, a drastic understatement. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. 2018, it got on the ballot initiative. They, uh, agreed to revamp the SIM. They agreed to like make a much more substantial canopy flight section. And it's now been years. Yeah. And the response I get back is, well, it takes time. Uh -huh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been done. You know what I mean? It's sort of ready if they wanted to work at uh, some arrangement where they could take a, a chapter out of my book or I have me rewrite it or something. I'd be happy to do it. You know, this is my family. Every Even the people I don't know yet, you know, that AFF student in Iowa or whatever, it's my family. 
it breaks my heart every time they get hurt. And especially when it's through lack of information. So just so I'm not crazy over here, um, how long did it take you to write a parachute and its pilot first edition? The first time was, I would say a couple of years, couple of years. Okay. So yeah. since the SIM has been on the ballot, um, it's been, uh, or the revamp of the SIM has been approved. Uh, they've taken more time than it took you to write the entire book front to back the first time. Yeah. Okay. Um, the last thing, uh, and you just kind of touched on it. So this is a perfect segue. The last thing that I heard from them, um, is that we don't update it because there is an acceptable amount of death and injury in our perspective. <clears throat> Tell that to the mamas and dadas. You know what I mean? The, the people who die, every single one of them is too many. What, are you going to stop trying? There's no such thing as acceptable loss. You just keep trying and you put everything you can into it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I call a low level of give a shit. That's a low level. Yeah, it's actually, and I, I kind of rem, uh, remembered that statement because it was something I had heard uh, as I was also um, being educated in psychology. This was like something that therapists of like the 1940s would say mm -hmm. to a married couple when mm -hmm. one of them comes in, uh, you know, complaining of domestic abuse. Uh, they'd say, well, there is some domestic abuse here, but there's an acceptable amount given the relationship. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is not something that like therapists of today do. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I appreciate your perspectives on this. Um, again, I hope that like me pointing these things out are just lighting a fire under not only the USPA, but also everybody in like involved paying members of the USPA to like, please like get on your high horse and, ride over, you know, to where you need to go, send a message, email, whatever you have to do to uh, try and get these materials updated because people do get injured and die every year because the information is just not there. It's not, but it is, it's just not through USPA. I mean, I wrote tests. You can go online and take tests on your canopy knowledge, you know, about the core concepts that actually are significant to your safety, not arbitrary rules. You know, horizontal distance from clouds and all that stuff is, you know, it's kind of regurgitating of facts that don't actually save your life in general. Um, let's get to the stuff that matters. So uh, while we are on this topic, um, I'd like to ask you, what is the modern methodology look like when it comes to training parachutes? I know you're messing around with some cool technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the most current uh, you know, models to me, it's, it's gotta be flowing, right? If I draw a pattern on the board, it's static. You know, if, if I, you know, explain the glide ratio of the canopy, that's the beginning is the static, but there has to be a, a flowing set of choices, a flowing set of motions, uh, in the way that you, you dirt dive, you put the guy in a creeper and, you know, show a, a turn or forward motion or pull motion. Um, you can't just, teach the idea, you have to test it and, and sort of shape what you see. So I use hanging harnesses and I, I, I've invented one that's really freaking cool where I, I go to the drop zone, I got to figure out where to build the thing. Um, in most cases, I'll actually leave it so that they have it to continue to, to serve their community. But so if you give harness input, the whole thing rolls, 
if if you flare i pull you forward i actually have a strap that goes to your leg strap so you can sort of practice not just you know sort of as you pull your toggles down pushing your head forward and your butt back and bring your feet underneath your body so a plf is an option right the natural forces throw your feet in front of you and your ass is not a very good shock absorber no you know you don't want to land on on your butt for unless it's a perfect landing uh, just with a lot of ground speed uh, so that that's been huge. It really, really helps people. And the other thing that that I've been using increasingly is uh, is virtual reality simulations for canopy flight based in FlySight data. Um, we're able to to generate you know, using Google Maps and and you know this uh, truthful you know algorithm that the, the canopy actually performs like a student parachute or an intermediate canopy dial the winds to the way they are right now, you know, at the drop zone and they can do a virtual jump and they can make mistakes and land in the trees or whatever. And go, all right, do over, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's try it again. And they get to learn from their mistakes in the way that we, you know, I mean, that's how we do it, right? You, you get a little bit of, I don't want to do that again. And now you really have an intense focus on doing what you want to do. Um, and they, now you don't need the radios, <laughs> you know, now there's, there isn't this reliance um, because it, it hurts me, man. I mean, I saw a guy, I'm not going to say which drop zone, but this year he went downwind on his AFF too far, uh, just ran past the drop zone, turned around, couldn't get back, landed in the trees, clipped a tree and spiraled in and died on his first jump. Wow. And that could have been eradicated, you know, with a simple simulation like this that can be done with a full VR or it can be done on a desktop. It's, Man, we thought we were hot shit back in the day just with a walking map. Yep. Yeah, well, that's cool. It's, it's <laughs> better than nothing. You know, I mean, yeah, we used to think if you have a big map of the drop zone underneath the hanging harness, you know, we kind of move it around. But we've, <laughs> we've moved into the, the next generation of this stuff, and it's very, very useful. And it's not that hard to do. You know, the, the system that I've been working with that seems the best for this function for actual skydiving training is called Skydive VR. Um, it's, uh, it's quite cool. I, I believe his website is, uh, skydiver, let's see, S K Y D I V R dot I O. Um, I gotcha. Very happy yep. with it. Very happy. It's, it's free to download the software too. It's just per use. You know, you pay per use. Well, something to definitely play around with. And, mm-hmm. um, that's some rad technology. Mm-hmm. Um, with the remaining time that we have left, uh, we've been talking about parachutes and, you know, the mechanics of them a lot. I'd like to talk about the person behind the parachute because that's the second half of your book. Yeah. Yep. Um, and my first question uh, is one that gets asked of basically everybody that parachutes. Are you crazy? <laughs> that's um, up so, to you. Yeah, what's, <laughs> that's what's your my, take on that? My, my initial, initial reaction is nobody can judge your insanity or sanity. It's, it's completely up to you. Um, but... I personally don't think that skydivers are crazy at all. I think we're quite the opposite. I would I would call the urge to experience adventure in an educated and trained way. I would call that brilliant sanity. You know, there's <laughs> there's regular sanity that keeps you from being not dead, and then you're a regretful, bitter old person who never did anything. But to me, brilliant sanity says you know, p- put on that backpack and go for a hike. You know, put on your rock shoes and climb some rock. It'll do something that that w- at the end of the day, you'll be glad. You'll be you know, and you risked it for a biscuit. You did something and you got something. So if we're not crazy, uh, and uh, 
we are going to do this like radically dangerous thing. Um, do you have any uh, tips for personal awareness? I know that uh, you've got some factors to be aware of, you know, and maybe some strategies that you can uh, give us for internal and external evaluation mm-hmm. to see if what we're doing is actually crazy or insane. Mm. Yep. Well, on, on one hand, there is there's loads of contemplative activities uh, or inactivities, I suppose, when you talk about sitting meditation, uh, but where you're, you're actually trying to be here now more intensely. Um, you know, on one hand, there's the inward focus of how is my breathing? You know, where am I holding tension in my body? What does my body feel like in this moment? Because I, I, I can't control it unless I'm aware of it. And when I get into higher levels of adrenaline, uh, I'm not aware of my body. It's almost an out-of-body experience. It's doing its own thing, like the horse underneath you that's freaking out with his horse, you know, his little horse ears pointing back, and he's just running. You know, to me, that's my body. And I need to learn how to say, you know, to my own adrenaline and control my breathing and, and empty my mind for a moment and be here in this moment as it is and accept that this is how I feel. This is my current heart rate. This is my current thought process and just let go of all of it and soothe and relax and open up the mind. And then the other part of awareness is the outward looking, you know, so observing, for instance, what's the wind doing? You know, what's the, what, what mood is the sky in at the moment? What about my gear, you know, that's sort of part of you and sort of isn't, you can be unaware that your pilot shoots halfway, uh, you know, out cause you don't have nerve endings there, at least not yet. <laughs> and then you have everybody else that you're also taking care of. Right. I mean, this is a community of practice and, and the, the, the safety comes in when you have many eyes, you know, all looking, you know, sort of towards each other and towards the situation so that we can say, Hey dude, you forgot your freaking leg straps as you're climbing over the bridge, <laughs> right? You know, that we, we need each other, you know? And, and I think that's one of the things about sky sports, adventure sports in general. That's so, it's so awesome. I love that, that I can help somebody else survive and they can help me survive. Interestingly enough, base jumping seems to be going the opposite direction lately hmm. where everyone wants to be, or a lot of people want to be hyper individual Mm. and they will refuse gear checks. They'll Mm. not, uh, not accept giving one. They'll, um, want to be completely in their own zone, Mm. uh, for various reasons. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you look at the development of a human being, it's, that's pretty normal. At first we're completely relying on our parents to change our diapers and feed us. And then we go to this next phase of adolescence where we're like, I want to be on my own, you know, in separation mode, um, in cultivating the sense of self-responsibility. And that's a beautiful experience, but it's also an illusion because we don't know everything. We can't know everything. We can't be aware of everything, you know, and, and uh, yes, I do stuff alone. You know, I, I, I'll go out and free solo alone. I'll launch my speed wing all alone, bring a phone. Um, and I understand the value of it. You know, there's something very uh, sort of pristine and and peaceful about that. Uh, that said, even so, I'm learning how to do that stuff in community through conversations. You know, through through a, this larger uh, body of knowledge that um, that we contain, not I contain. 
You know, I think we got to move more into this we attitude. You want to go and, you know, hike out in Moab and hawk off or something. That's fine. All right. It's your choice. You know, it's every man's freedom to risk his life in order to save it. Um, but that said, we still have to feel like a community and pass this information around. Now that you've touched on a sense of self, I want to ask you about ego. Uh, ego is commonly brought up in para sports as like a negative thing, mm. a negative quality. Mm. Um, what do you believe the role of ego is in mm. parachute sports? And is it default negative? Mm. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not automatically negative. If you don't have a sense of self, then you don't have an urge to stay alive. That won't work either. But if you have an overinflated sense of self with very clear boundary of boundaries of what you are and aren't and what you can and can't do, then it's it, very quickly you find yourself wanting, you know, where you you believe that you've got skills that you don't have, or you are undervaluing your skill and not doing things that you could do, right? Uh, so the ego needs to simply be kept in check. You know, where we we can hold it a little bit more loosely in our hands, and and approach this you know experience that is building up of our our self confidence and our self affection or whatever you want to call it self respect. You know, you do something where you put yourself into a dangerous situation and you get through it on your own through your own choices and your own actions. You should feel good about yourself. Of course, you should. Um, that said, don't take that confidence to mean that you can do anything, right? You were able to do that set of, you know, tight parameters, those, that context, you were able to do that in that mood, you know, with that level of hydration and that level of, you know, nutrition and all that stuff and mental focus. Yeah, you did. And you, and you were awesome and you should feel good about yourself, but it doesn't mean anything about the next moment. That's a different situation. Jump shifting a little bit, um, what role do emotions play mm. uh, when you're going through this process? And yeah. uh, more point, uh, more pointed question: Are all our emotions valid? Well, they're valid for us. You know, it's how you feel, and you, it's uh, there's nobody that can say that that it's invalid. Now, is it based on a logical? set of processes that you will agree with later with a different perspective? No, not necessarily, right? You may feel angry about something in this moment and later you look at it and go, actually, that guy that cut me off on the highway that I was so pissed at and I flipped him the bird and then I tailgated him, he was taking his wife to the hospital because she had, you know, something going on, right? So we, we have our first thoughts that can be very intense and emotional. We just have to have a little bit of wiggle room, you know, a little lack of certainty. I would call that grace, you know, where we're not so certain, so quick to judge with such harshness our, ourselves or others or situations. And you come into it with a little bit more maybe, you know, I think it's this, my current data is pointing towards that. That's science, right? To have a little bit of science about our emotional discernment process, I think is wise. Uh, yeah, but to, to also recognize that we have a scale on the positive and negative in terms of the affect, right? How do you feel? Um, you, can have a, you can have a high heart rate, but be leaning into the experience with the big cosmic yes. And great, you know, that, that's called euphoria. That's joy. 
right? That's, you know, it's the big O, it's the whatever, you know, so that's great. But that same heart rate with a negative affect, a negative sensation, where you just feel a shrinkage of your soul, just saying, ah, I don't know if I want to. And then, you know, maybe you listen too much to your friends saying, oh, you'll be fine or whatever. Um, that discernment, it's an opportunity and it doesn't always scream in your ear. You know, sometimes it whispers. While we're talking about the big O, I'd also like to get your take on the dividing line between healthy and unhealthy motivations. Mm -hmm. Is there a delineation between those two? Like, is it a gray area? How can you tell mm -hmm. whether you're chasing something uh, in a healthy way mm -hmm. and when you're getting into unsustainable territory? Yeah. Well, the first one is if you're going to risk your life, you better be doing it for you to make sure that you're your motivations are for your own expansion. Anything else is a waste of your time. Now, are you trying to uh, create new data points to mask an inner sense of inadequacy? Well, that's not a really healthy motivation fully. You know, you, you have to change how you feel about yourself and then validate it through your actions. Um, if you're always trying to prove yourself, you know, the, the sort of blind stuntman kind of attitude, you're not going to live very long. You know, I've buried so many friends that just were just, they were trying to prove something. And it's almost kind of a narcissistic, unhealthy, neurotic uh, way to do it. And other people that are just so positive in the way that they do everything and it's, uh, they're motivated for the right reasons. It's intrinsically motivating. The experience itself is why you're doing it, not the relief of the danger afterwards, right? That's addictive. Yeah, right? totally. And I'd like to point out that like when we say unhealthy, uh, mm. we're not saying that you can't do it mm -hmm. because obviously people do things that are unhealthy all the time, you know, and get away with it and, mm -hmm. you know, have a relatively long career doing whatever it is. And, you know, it's, it's unhealthy is not quote unquote wrong. It's just likely to lead to negative consequences. Right. That's all. Like it, natural <laughs> if you're one of those people out there, yeah, yeah that's saying like, well, I, I'm I'm choosing this intentionally, then it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. But like there can still be the outward um observation that what it is is unhealthy. And yep. so Yeah, like, is is it wrong that my kid tried cooking eggs without butter in the pan? It wasn't wrong. It was a pain in the ass afterwards, the cleanup. And I could, I had the foresight to, you know what I mean? To see ahead, this is going to suck later, but we can soak the pan, but I want him to experience it because he was like, no, I want to try it this way. Okay. We'll see how it goes. You know, in, in some of the things, that's how we have to relate to the people around us. Just like, all right, you know, you're going to learn your lessons with other things. We have to use skillful means, use sort of graceful ways of communicating to get them to stop doing it because they're about to freaking die. And, right? and we do have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters to communicate. Whether they take it or not, that's up to them. Yeah. That's a perfect segue into the next question of how do you feel about empowering people to risk their lives? Yeah. You know, you were, you know, uh, integral in like the progression of air sports. And so you've added more danger to the space. In a way. Like, yep. So teaching people how, you, how to swoop, teaching them how to free fly. They were all happy at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So how do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, they're from one perspective, I say, well, you know, they're all going to die anyway. 
right? Every single one of us that are alive right now listening to this podcast, yeah, you, this is a temporary body. This is, it'll be here, then it won't. That said, hopefully I've done a really good job of, of exuding my central concept, which is I'm not just about doing dangerous things. I'm about doing it safely with awareness, you know, where, where the experience is within your control. Cause I get off on controlling something that's kind of on the edge of control. That's really fun for me. Harnessing um, chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Harnessing chaos and sort of reeling back the numbers into an acceptable balance of risk and skill. Yep. Uh, so along that line, um, can you see a jumper's destiny? Well, sometimes I do, unfortunately. Um, and, and sometimes it's the other way around. You know, I, I meet people who are, are like, wow, you're going to be a rock star. I know you only got 18 jumps or whatever, but I can see it in your eyes. You're going to be a, something huge. I don't know what it is. And others are like, yeah, I don't know, this guy's probably not going to get old. And usually it's about how well they listen more than anything else. How are they more interested in telling their stories, you know, all about me, 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 or are they actually fascinated with the information? That's, that seems to be the big, the biggest difference. Um, and, and of course that there's a lot of folks that you see are just going too fast, you know what I mean? Whether it's, you know, too many jumps in a short period of time without enough skill, or they're on a parachute that's not appropriate, or they're doing dangerous stuff, pulling too low or something. Um, and, and that's just about behavior patterns. And if you can frame it in a way that, that changes their perspective a little bit where they see the value of just reeling it back, you know, just, you know, I say you can, you can visit the edge of the cliff, but don't build your house there. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're, you're doing deliberate stunts once in a while, you know, where, where you've really thought it through and you know, you're at higher risk, but the fact that you know it, allows you to prepare for it. And then you go back to sort of your normal level of risk. Uh, but that, that lesson is not always heard. That's the part that's painful for me. When I, I see that projected future, that it, the extension of their life vector further into the future and I go, Oh yeah, yep. This one's not going to be here much longer unless maybe I can reach them. You know, if I, if they get, I inspire them to, uh, to change the way they do things for the right reason and not feel like they're giving up something, you know, like those poor bastards that, that die from quitting smoking because they feel like a piece of their soul is gone because they let go of that addiction. Well, I think a lot of people have that about their, their self-confidence. If I have to get, you know, sort of reel back the way that I do things um, from the full on everything all the time attitude, well, then life is just boring. That's, I'm, I'm, old, I'm old, you know? Um, that's not true. That's not true at all. And it, they have to see that though. So sometimes you can change their direction. And that's an interesting question that you bring up that no one on the podcast has really had a good answer for. Um, do you have any insights into how to approach somebody hmm. that you might view as not valuing their life? Like a, yeah. a lot of folks are, they basically write those uh, interactions off as unapproachable. Like mm -hmm. no, no matter what I say, this person's not going to listen to me. Well, sometimes it's true. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of mental illnesses. I mean, you ask, are we crazy as, as a collective? I would say, no, no, we're not. What we're doing is absolutely beautiful. That said, 
a couple of them have borderline personality. A couple of them have narcissistic personality. A couple of them, you know, they, they've got stuff they're getting over. It could be early childhood stuff. And so they're not listening with the same ears that, that uh, somebody that is wired differently will listen. But it's not usually that. Usually it's, you're explaining in a certain way, your, your conversational tempo and the way that you respond isn't meeting them where they are initially. You're just coming at them with advice and walking away because you've got the authority and you've got the knowledge and whatever. And they're going to be like, well, I want to be one of those too. You know, I want to be one of these guys that knows everything too. So I don't, if I, if I don't listen to anybody, that means that I know everything. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it's subcontext. I don't think they realize uh, that that's what they're doing mentally. Uh, but we got to find better ways of, of talking to people where we're being friendly. I think that's, you know, you actually be friendly. You, you hang out with them and you talk to them and you, you talk about what they're interested in. And then you work it in kind of in a, in a more graceful way with, yeah, well, something I've noticed from my own experience is this and that. And you end it whenever possible with something positive. With something that, that's uplifting and, you know, in, in not just words, but emotions, right? I can say, I love you. It doesn't feel it. But if, if, if I say it in a way that really generates the emotion, you know, I, I really like base jumping. That, you don't feel that, but I like base jumping. It's so much fun. You know what I mean? So, so the way that you communicate some sort of an emotion at the end that leaves that emotional bookmark as a, as a positive wrapper around what, you know, this interaction, this conversation, um, that's, how, that's the skillful means. Right. It's not just the ending, of course. Uh, it's it's how you spoke, whether it's a back and forth or a lecture. Right. Because I mean, how many people get into base jumping because they're like, I'm sick of being bossed around. I want to do things my way. And that yeah. is beautiful. That's the human spirit saying, I, I'm not dead yet. You know, I'm not going to go into robot mode and follow orders that are stupid. Um, that's awesome. But what if we could all get into that? You know, I, mean, I always thought it'd be funny to have a t-shirt that says, I want to be a nonconformist too. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uplifting, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with uh, mm. that's uplifting or otherwise? It could be, uh, you know, could be the opposite, but anything that uh, you'd like to leave the community with um, on the top of your mind. I appreciate the value of what you're doing recognize that every single moment, whether you're, you're, you're stowing your toggles and, you know, getting ready to pack up or or driving somewhere to go to do a flight or just even the most mundane things in your life, appreciate that the path you're walking is special, you know, through your courage, through your self-confidence, through your friends' networks and the knowledge base that you're connecting to, you're doing something that is, is historic. You know, it's epic in terms of, you know, the hero's journey, you know, from, from first the self-confidence and then the fall, okay? Because we all eat it once in a while. We have scary moments where we get major pucker factor and then the getting back onto that confidence. You know, to me, that, that's the hero's journey is the recovery from the injuries, from the self-confidence blows or, or the chew outs from people that we respect. You know, that, that humbling where they feel like you, know, you feel like they took a piece out of you, that recovery back up to the joy and appreciation for what you're doing, um, in, in the self-confidence that leads to more, this is an epic journey that every one of you guys are on. And, and I respect all of you for it. 
Wow. Well, with that, I want to ask, um, where do people find you and how do they connect with you? We've covered a lot of stuff on this podcast, but you know, really at a surface level and somebody uh, might want to dive into some of these topics a bit more with you. So yeah, where do they find you and how do they connect? Well, the most way to, the best way to find me live these days is, uh, through my, my mighty networks. Uh, I, I have a, an area on the web that's private. It's membership only. Um, which is pretty cool because the only people you're interacting with are base jumpers and paraglider pilots and skydivers. And we meet up uh, at least twice a week. Um, lately, I've been doing three times a week. I don't know if that's sustainable or not, but we meet up on Zoom and we have conversations about whatever. You know, it can be safety. It can be safety third, as I call it, you know, or like, well, how do you jump with a raft? You know, um, and we record all the conversations you know, the videos of that and it's all available. There's over 300 hours. So that's, that's really one of the, the best ways that you can, um, actually connect because it's the conversations that really deepen all this stuff, you know, the questions and answers. And it's not only me answering it, you know, we got lots of experienced people that join these, these sessions. Um, and it's, it's cool. It's really, really cool. And, and I do hope people buy the book and read it. That's why I work so hard to write it. Cause I think it can help. I think you can actually change the stats more than regulation will. <laughs> yeah. And, and on that note, it's available both in paper form and digital copy and in uh, three languages now, English, Spanish, and French. And Russian. Yeah. And Russian. Yeah. I didn't authorize that one. I just found it on the web, <laughs> translated. You're like, what the? So I downloaded and started selling it. Uh, but yeah, that's um, that's a good book. And in Transcending Fear, I think people will, will really like that one too as well. You know, going into the a deeper dive into what fear is, what we can do about it, what's the advantage of having, you know, a certain perspective on our adrenaline and using it. Um, so yeah, I think you'll like it. Well, thanks very much. Um, what's the website again? Uh, well, that it's not actually a website. It's, so it's, it's mightynetworks.com. And then from there, you got to go to Brian Germain Coaching Network and you can okay. sign up for that. It's, you know, so for view only, it's nine bucks a month. If you actually participate, it's 25 bucks a month. It's not much. And you also have uh, the book on a website as well, correct? I do. And yeah, and the primary website is adventurewisdom.com. Perfect. Yeah, lots well, of good thanks. stuff there. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate all of the insights and wisdom and uh, time and energy. Always glad to help. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer. We love you and we couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, exitpointpodcast.com. Until next time, take care. And for everyone jumping out there, remember it's not what we do, but how we do it that speaks for who we are.